this is Osatru Academics here. Osatru is the belief in the Norse gods. It's the native Norse religion. Think Vikings, Thor, Odin, etc. The etc is what I talk about. This episode, we're going to be talking about runes. They are those linear-looking, quote, Viking letters. They're on decorations, clothing, weapons, jewelry, skin even. They're in the movies Frozen and How to Train Your Dragon. They're used in video games like God of War and Assassin's Creed. Heck, even my logo has runes. They are more common than sense at this point. A reason runes look so much more simple and linear than our modern Latin letters isn't because the people were dumber back then. It's actually a smart design choice. Consider the medium you write in now. Outside of typing, you use paper. What happens if you make a horizontal line on paper? You have a horizontal line on paper. Nothing weird. Now, what if you were carving into wood? If you make a horizontal cut into flat wood or a stick, it would be into the grain. It would be hard to see and could even split the wood. That's why none of the runes have horizontal marks. They're always angled. So let's talk about runes and clear up many misconceptions and see how many people are using them incorrectly. This is going to step on a bunch of people's toes, I'm sure, and fill my inbox with more angry rants. How fun. First, what actually are runes? They look mysterious still even hundreds of years later, which just proves they were correctly named. The word rune comes from the Germanic root rune, R-U-N. It means a secret or a whisper. In Old Gaelic, rune means mystery. So 100 points to the dude who named them so aptly. Reading and writing weren't common skills for a very long time with the lack of open education and economic class strains. So what are these, quote, mysterious whispers? Runes are letters. They are an alphabet. A big old chunk of Europe today would be reading and writing in a form of them if it wasn't for forced Christianity. The oldest surviving runic inscriptions we've found date back to 150 current era. The runic alphabet was phased out by 700 CE for Central Europe and 1100 CE for Northern Europe. That's because in 1066, this annoying duke from Normandy named William started conquering England. Yeah, remember William? Conquering England? Yeah. Now, while the Christian church waged war on paganism everywhere, they didn't have a push to remove runes or abolish their use. There are actually more rune stones we found that were created after European Christianization than before. That's because runes were an alphabet. They weren't seen as symbols for a pagan religion, but as symbols for communication. That's what they are. This is important to remember. Remember. They're symbols for communication. That's going to come up later. How am I sure that a big portion of Europe would still be using the runic alphabet? Parts of Sweden, like Dalarna, still used runic calendars up until the 20th century. While Europe switched from a runic alphabet to a Latin one, it wasn't part of the purposeful oppression. Monks wrote in Latin letters. They also did schools. A group of monks could dedicate their lives to writing all day, every day, on parchment because the Catholic Church was rich. That's what happens when you conquer everyone around you. A typical person couldn't write all day. There were more and more Latin manuscripts and more and more pupils in monasteries. Runes just phased out as a common person couldn't read or write in any alphabet. So you may be asking yourself, are runes letters? Yes, each rune itself corresponds to an audible sound of a spoken word, just like our modern letters still do. 
Most runic inscriptions we have found are as mundane as it gets. They just say stuff like, this guy made this runestone when this other dude died. Nothing magical there, just a signature and a dedication. On top of that, most Viking Age people couldn't read or write with any alphabet. So are runes inherently magical? No. Think back to the definition of magic. There can't be anything inherently magical. Magic requires belief. There isn't anything magical about any symbol at all because magic requires a belief beforehand. This is why it differs from science. If I put a pile of hemlock shavings in your drink, the effects will be the same regardless of my belief. And I'm also going to wonder why you didn't notice there were shavings in your drink and you were crunching it. There is nothing magical about the shape of a star or a baby doll. But there is about a pentagram and a voodoo doll. What makes them different? The belief and the ritual behind them cause a type of placebo effect. That unique placebo-like effect is magic. Same thing for runes. Runes become magical when they stop representing a sound and start having a belief and expectation. That's when they transfer from being a letter into a symbol. Just like a pentagram doesn't represent a sound. Like, what does a pentagram sound like? I, I don't even know what that would sound like. Would it be like a goat? Bang? We had goats. Anyway, so if runes are an alphabet, how can letters be used for magic outside of a Norse Ouija board type thing? Remember how I said they were for communication? Bingo was his name Oh, Communication. I'm not talking about seance type things. I'm talking about divination, spells, enchantments. Traditionally, runes could be used for four things. Communication in the future, divination, spells, and enchanting. Writing at its core is intrinsically future-based. You write something to be read in the future. You are communicating with yourself or others at a future date. Divination is just communication with the future. But instead of you writing to them, you're hoping and asking for hints from the future to you. It is writing in reverse. You're wanting to read in the past instead of the future. You can enchant with pretty much any symbol, so that's not unique to runes. What is unique to runic enchantments is that you can reinforce the exact meaning of the symbol with the literal meaning. You can write the exact expectation as the symbol itself. That is special. It's the same idea, for instance, when some people have tattoos of literal words or names. They say Faith or Love or Jolene or Mom or whatever. Some people have quotes on themselves. I have one. It's a symbol that's literal. So you're probably asking yourself, so are runes magical or is all that just made up crazy stuff and we are all going to get mad now? <laughs> I want to give you an allegory. An allegory is a story with a deeper meaning. So here we go. Say humans developed and built a new special extra super duper high powered telescope. It lets us see up close onto the surface of the planets in our solar system. With it, we discover there are actually aliens walking around on Venus. They are humanoid, and while not as advanced as we are, definitely high intelligence. I mean, after all, we made an extra super duper high power telescope. These aliens have complex societies full of cooperative colonies. 
Now we start looking at the shelters each family unit of aliens lives in and notice above each one of the entrances, there are weird markings. We look at the other shelters and some don't have these deep scratches carved into them. As we watch, we see they aren't defects in the shelter structure because at the very end of construction, these scratches are purposely carved in. What do you conclude about these markings? Are they decoration? Maybe. Are they identifying the house like an address number? Maybe. Are they magic symbols to ward off evil? That seems like a big jump in logic, right? Like, where did that idea even come from? Why is that? What evidence led you to think magic? We have to be careful when we don't see the answers we want to see because they would make us more excited or happier, but that we only are seeing the facts and logical conclusions that can be drawn from them. Then we can be accurate. So were the runes ever used for magic at all? Oh yeah, but we have to be very careful when we try to say this was rune magic. Just on looks because every factual claim requires proof or it's just an opinion. So our best sources are text because they definitely say at this time, this is magic. The oldest and most detailed account of the magical practices of Germanic people was from Tactus's Germania. He wrote about the Germanic people doing divination. One in particular, he says, quote, they attached the highest importance to the taking of signs and casting lots. Their usual procedure with the lot is simple. They cut off a branch from a nut-bearing tree and slice it into strips. These they mark with a different sign and throw them at random onto a white cloth. Then the state's priest, if it's an official consultation, or the father of the family in a private one, offers prayer to the gods and looking up towards the heaven picks up three strips, one at a time, and according to which sign they have previously been marked with, makes his interpretation. If the lot forbids an undertaking, there is no deliberation that day about the matter in question. If they allow it, further confirmation is required by looking for signs. Now, while we have this very detailed description, did you assume that the symbols on the wooden strips were runes? Why? Why couldn't they have been any other magical symbol? The numbers of the strips weren't even given, which would have been helpful to argue that they were runes. Was the cutting and carving all done by the same person? Did you assume it was? It didn't say that either. What if they did carve runes on them, but the carvings were possible outcomes like a magic eight ball toy? Like someone carves yes, no, good outcome, bad outcome, whatever. You could infer that it was runes, but you can't claim that it was without evidence supporting that. All you know is that there were markings carved into strips of wood for divination. We have to be very careful to examine where we fill in our blanks of knowledge and with what. Where did we get the idea that they were runes? Where did that idea come from? Where did you read or hear that they were runes? Was that a highly credible source that you adopted it from? Did they make a compelling case or just state it? We're going to come back to this divination account a little bit later. But as for accounts that have more direct relation to runes and magic, in Egil's saga, there was a girl who was very sick. Egil was consulted about it and found that a guy had tried to make her fall in love with him with runes. However, he did them incorrectly and was making her sick. Typical. He corrected that with correct runes under her pillow and she got all better. This isn't the only account of runic magic in this saga. Bard and Gunhild decided to poison Egil for basically being loud and annoying while eating and drinking at their party. 
Understandable. We've all kind of been there. But Egil is suspicious and fantastic with runes. He draws a rune on his cup to protect him from poison. It explodes when a poison drink comes in contact to it. Realizing what has happened, Egil kills Bard. Another time in the same saga, Egil was out and about when his brother was killed. He plans to marry his sister-in-law and get his brother's land. But Eric Bloodaxe has already given away his land. Egil uses Rune to place a curse on Eric and Gunhild. It's always Gunhild. In the medieval ballad, The Knight Stig's Runes and Wedding, Stig is in love with Kirsten. He tries to win her affections with the aid of a rune staff, which he waves under her skirt. But unfortunately, the staff accidentally rolls under Princess Rajitsi's dress, and the magic works on her instead. The princess falls in love with Stig straight away, and he has to marry her. You know who else is famous for using runes and magic? Oh yeah, none other than Odin himself. He was the discoverer of the runes after all. In the Havamal, it says that he hung himself on the world tree for nine days and nights without food or drink, and that he had stabbed himself with his spear. He sacrificed himself to himself. He didn't create them, and they transcend him. In the Havamal, there is also a very obscure part of the passage having to do with the runes. Havamal 143 and 144. It is a lesson on how to use the runes. Let me give you my version of the passage in modern English, because you can find other versions on the internet. 143. Do you know how to write, read, paint, prove, ask, offer, send, spend? It's better to ask for too little than to offer too much as a sacrifice. What you get back won't be seen as great if you sacrifice too greatly. So, let's compare this to Germania's account that we talked about earlier with the divination. It says that symbols were written, painted, asked with, and answers were received. This is the same exact order from Havamal 143. The Havamal even offers a tip at the end of don't sacrifice too much for something small you're asking for. Based on this very specific set of questions and the order of questions that comes right in the middle of talking about runes, I feel it's safe to infer those were runes on the wood pieces in Tacitus's account. Whether they were just a rune or words, that's kind of irrelevant. Maybe you've seen people talk about the meaning of each rune. Where did that come from? There are three runic poems. The oldest is the Anglo-Saxon one. It's from the 8th century. The Norwegian one is from the 13th century, and the Icelandic one is from the late 15th century. Each names a rune and has a rhyming stanza with it. It's important to note that the names of the Elder Futhark runes are not known to us, but these later rune names are. As for the meanings of the runes, there's page after page after page on the internet of the letter's so-called magical meanings. Some thankfully at least try to connect them to the poems. This is one of the issues of being so far away from the time when things were created. Really old languages like Greek, Phoenician, and Hebrew, their letter names are longer, such as Alpha and Aleph. We just have A. That's tiny. Now the letter A in the Hebrew and Phoenician alphabet both mean ox. It's the same word, Aleph. But our letter A doesn't mean anything outside of the letter. It is a word, but it doesn't have any meaning in itself. 
our letter names are unique to just the letters. Yeah, there's some words like A and I, but that's not the same. I haven't seen any wild W's flying over the K's last S. So we don't have the concept in our language of a letter and a noun sharing the same name as part of our lives. The closest we get to is with Y, U, P, R, I, T, B, etc. But they aren't since our letter names don't have any meanings. They are meaningless! English gives incredibly short names to our letters. We call the letter L, L, rather than say lake. Like, what is a W outside of a letter? Nothing. But it is a medieval bind letter of a double U. W. But we don't use it for magic unless we're writing down a spell or something. Speaking of bind runes, you may be asking yourself, Hey, lady, what about all these bind runes, huh? I keep seeing them on pagan home decor and people crafting them and all sorts of stuff. Aren't they magical? First off, let's cover what's a bind rune. Two runes written together as one with no space in between. That's a bind rune. Just like there isn't anything inherently magical about a letter, the same with putting two letters together. The British letter ash, which looks like an A and an E squished together, is effectively a bind rune. There's a good bit of logos that are equivalent to that, like the New York Mets logo, and more exactly, the Bluetooth symbol. Those are both bind runes. Well, what was the purpose of ancient bind runes? Was it an enchantment technique? Think of cursive. To save space and time. Bind runes were more common in Elder Futhark than younger only because of the shape of the letters themselves. If a rune had a line on the side rather than in the middle, then it could be available for another letter stuck onto it without it smushing into something that can't really be made out. That's why there were more bind runes in Elder Futhark than younger. Since we're talking about Elder Futhark, I want to bring up something that annoys me to no end about a majority of heathens slash pagans and the runes. There seems to be this belief that Elder Futhark is somehow the best system of runes for magic. I think the idea was that because it was before Christianization, it's more pagan somehow? I don't know. But the overwhelming majority of runic items and tattoos out there are in Elder Futhark. Please do not discredit younger Futhark or any of the rune systems as less valid systems because Christians were colonizing at that time. Some people erroneously believe that Elder is superior because the sagas and the Edda were written in Elder Futhark. Nope. No, 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 no. Some people believe that Old Norse was written in Elder Futhark, so that's why they're better. Nope. No, it wasn't. Nope. Don't let the words Old and Elder confuse you. Old Norse was written in the 16 letters of the younger Futhark. Old Norse, in Younger. Proto-Norse or Gothic were the languages that Elder Futhark was written in. How can you remember it? I like to remember it as Elder Futhark is older than old. Old Norse, that is. There's also a misconception that Elder and Younger Futhark are the only rune systems. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's cover some of the runic systems. Elder Futhark isn't even the oldest system of runes. But Elder is overwhelmingly the most popular right now and better recorded than the previous systems, so we'll start there. Elder Futhark was between the 2nd and 8th centuries. It had 24 letters. Anglo-Saxon runes were next. 
They were between the 5th and 11th centuries. There were 29 to 33 characters, a lot more than Elder Futhark. During the time of Anglo-Saxon runes, between the 8th to 9th centuries, the Marcomannic runes happened. This is a mix that was evolving at the time. The currently unloved younger Futhark was between the 9th and 11th centuries. It was only 16 characters, easier to memorize than 24 elder runes, hmm? After elder, Anglo-Saxon, Marcomannic, and younger Futhark came the medieval runes between the 12th and 15th century. There were 30 of them. The last system of runes were the De La Carlian runes in the 16th to 19th centuries. These are special to the province of Dalarna, Sweden, who used the runes as well as the Latin alphabet. There were 46 of those runes. I know that's a lot of info to dump at once. The point is that Elder Futhark really started in the 2nd century and it evolved into Younger Futhark because Elder Futhark lacks the ability to produce certain sounds. There should be no abstaining or abhorrence towards Younger as some sort of tainted or modern thing. It's just upgraded Elder. And if you're writing Old Norse words, please try not to use Elder Futhark. It's easier, makes more sense, and it's more accurate to use Younger. So if there's very little sources on how to use the runes for magic, how come there's gobs of web pages and books and videos on how to do it? The two most responsible for that are Ralph Bloom and Stephen Flowers. I'm going to give you a brief background on both of them. Ralph Bloom is a writer and Harvard-trained anthropologist who's been working with the runes for self-counseling since 1977. He published his first book, on runic magic in 1982. It was called The Book of Runes. It was very successful. Very. He came out with 11 more books on runes afterwards. He's also written books on Taoism, Zen Buddhism, and UFOs. His version of casting runes, or rune cards, is similar to tarot cards. Another author who's had a big influence on how runic magic is done today is Stephen Flowers. His pen name is Idrid Thorson. He got his PhD in Germanic languages and medieval studies in 1984. That same year, he joined the Temple of Set, a heavily magical offshoot of the Church of Satan. On top of that, Flowers was a Grand Master of the Order of the Trapezoid from 1987 through 1999. The Order of the Trapezoid was formed by former Satanists and Quino, who was fascinated with the connections between occultism and Nazism. The order adheres to satanic philosophy with runes from heathenry. This is reflected in Flowers' many books, but most notably, his book, The Secret King, The Myth and Reality of Nazi Occultism. So why am I letting you know all this stuff? I'm not saying they're wrong in their techniques or books. I'm not saying they are full of nonsense or that Satanists are bad. I'm just simply giving you their background and some of their natural biases so that you can make informed choices in your own practices. It is extremely important to vet authors before you read their works. Who you are learning from is more important than what you are learning. The associations and organizations that they're proud enough to make public are very telling. Their other works give you insight into their interest as well.
Looking at someone's background is helpful to determine where they may be getting their ideas and even some of their motive. There have been authors, organizations, and content creators who maybe even started off great, but then radicalized some teaching unsubstantiated claims. Just like your life is moving forward, others are too, and sometimes not always in the best way possible. Checking in on their current views, beliefs, and associations is a great way to prevent adopting an opinion rather than building your own knowledge on a topic. The irony is that I'm very purposely anonymous. I have been very open about my background on my Instagram page, and I have no problem sharing most stuff about my life outside of identifying information. That's because when I used to do this publicly, there were some safety concerns a few years back. Neo-Nazis really need to get better hobbies. As it is, my name, what I look like, and where I live now don't have an effect on what I believe anyways. If you want to vet me, I am more than excited to help with that. Send me a message. I would love to see people taking care in their belief. It's not an offensive thing at all to want to vet me. I am an open book, just with no cover. I did want to make sure I said thank you to all of you who have reached out and been extra super nice and sweet during this weird experience of learning what a divorce is like. So I really thank you and appreciate you guys. If you have any topics or questions in particular you want me to talk about, send me a message on Instagram at Osutru Academics. And hey, it makes both of our lives easier if I don't have to guess what you want to learn about and you get to learn more quickly. Subscribe so you don't have to spend time checking to see if I made your episode yet. Plus, you get to learn others' answers too. Win, win, win. Triple win for the win. Till next time. <laughs>